Welcome to episode 8 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. On this episode, we're going to talk about music assholes. Every year around Christmas, the NYPD held a roller skating party for the cops and their families, an event we kids looked forward to, heralding as it did both the beginning of winter break and the imminent arrival of Santa Claus. It was at one of these annual parties that I first encountered music snobbery. I was sitting on the sidelines listening to my Walkman and watching the other kids skate around the rink when an older boy approached me and asked me what I was listening to. Run DMC, I said, hoping to make a friend. Psh, said the boy dismissively. You don't know anything about Run DMC. I do too, I insisted. I know a lot. Name six songs then, challenged the boy. This was a very lucky break for me, because at the time I knew exactly six Run DMC songs and no more. See, I had yet to own a Run DMC album, but I had three of their singles, each of which featured two songs. You Be Illin', King of Rock, Walk This Way, Hit It Run, It's Tricky, and Proud to Be Black, I recited. You didn't even name my favorite one, said the kid, unimpressed. Then the boy took a different tack and asked what kind of bike I had. I didn't own a bike, I owned a skateboard, and I told him so. I bet it's pink, said the boy. Nuh-uh, it's purple, I told him. It was. Ha, needled the boy. That's a lesbian color. You're a lesbian. Needless to say, this very discerning Run DMC fan ruined my evening. But the incident taught me a very important lesson. People with similar tastes don't necessarily make for allies. In fact, they're often just the opposite. Which brings us to the subject of what I'm calling music assholes. Over the course of my life, I've worked at seven different record stores. In many ways, it's the only job for which I'm truly qualified. Years of studying musical minutiae has rendered me nearly encyclopedic about certain things that mean very little to most of the world, but mean a great deal to people who share the passion. I'm not trying to brag, but I can confidently speak to 10 different record shop customers about 10 different musical nooks, and whether that customer is a fan of bluegrass, Indian classical, Detroit techno, Dylan bootlegs, Afrobeat, pre-war blues, doom metal, prog, Depeche Mode, 80s country, screamo, power electronics, hard bop, city pop, Frank Sinatra, roots reggae, or pretty much anything else, they will invariably leave our conversation thinking, man, that guy and I have the exact same taste in music. On my CD shelf, as in my heart, Tim McGraw, Merciful Fate, and Mertzbau are unlikely bedfellows. These same crowded places of worship are also where Max Roach, Steve Roach, and the Roaches peacefully coexist. Daniel Higgs of Lungfish once said something in an interview to the effect of, music isn't a matter of good or bad, but true or false. I always like that, stuck with me. Anyway, whatever music you're into, I can talk to you about it, because more than likely I've at some point been obsessed with that thing too. I say with all humility, this is my gift the glorious results of a misspent youth. Incidentally, my wide-ranging musical interest is one of the things that has made my own music difficult to categorize, for better or worse, mostly worse. I admire and envy those artists who might devote an entire career to one sound or style, or even one instrument, but I've always been far too impressionable to do this myself. I'll be in the middle of making like a psych rock or ambient record, 
and someone will play me a Munir Bashir CD, and I'll suddenly want to scrap the whole album I'm working on and go out and buy an oud. Being an insatiable musical sponge has rendered me impetuous and suggestible as an artist, a jack of too many trades. Part of the appeal of working in a record store is obvious. The employee discounts, the camaraderie with like-minded people with similar interests, the ability to listen to music all day and to get to hear new albums before anyone else. I almost immediately began viewing my role at the record store as that of a goodwill ambassador, observing the old cliché about being the change you want to see in the world. As more and more record stores begin closing due to streaming, as well as a general cultural pivot away from the kind of fandom that flourished before music competed with so many other distractions like social media and video games and podcasts, the record store clerk's goal, as I see it, is to bring people in and not cast them out. I've worked alongside the record store asshole. That archetype is unfortunately quite real. Guys who snort when a kid brings an uncool record to the counter, or when a customer asks, innocently, which of Tom Waits' many albums she should start with. No one wants to feel uncool when they're buying anything, and ridiculing a person's judgment or taste only chases those people to buying online, to piracy, to streaming, or to general disillusionment, aiding in the destruction of the very specific and increasingly rare communities that the best record stores can foster. I believe the film High Fidelity, and to a lesser extent the Nick Hornby novel on which it's based, while admittedly containing some harsh truths about life in a retail environment, set the reputation of record stores back an entire generation by mainstreaming the stereotype of the record store asshole. The Simpsons character comic book guy is also complicit here. Nowadays, even people who have never set foot inside a record store know to expect derision and mockery at the hands of the self-appointed experts behind the counter. Films like High Fidelity cast the record store clerk as an enemy to be avoided, feared, or mocked. Only once did I exhibit high-fidelity-like behavior while employed at a record store. One time I overheard two gentlemen disparaging the Velvet Underground, and finding myself unable to abide their heresy, I politely asked the fellas to continue their conversation outside. After all, you don't just walk into a Catholic church and start talking shit about John the Baptist. Look, the fact is this— Everyone buys lame, uncool records. I've bought lame, uncool records. I've bought lame, uncool records this month. No matter how cool or hip a person behind the record store counter may appear, it's a sure bet that they've at some point felt humiliated or spoken down to by a record store clerk or other self-appointed cultural gatekeeper. They've at some point bought the wrong record by the right artist, or thought Molly Hatchet was a person rather than a band. Now, I would pit my trivial knowledge of music, of all music, against any self-proclaimed expert on earth. Yet even I can vividly recall examples from my adolescent and teenage years that made me feel unworthy and lame. Two in particular come to mind. It may be difficult to imagine a time when albums on cassette were such valuable commodities that they were displayed inside locked glass cases like Rolex watches. But this was the custom at many stores, including Ziggy's, one of Staten Island's two independent record shops. It was embarrassing to have to ask the store clerk to stop what they were doing and come unlock the case for you, because if you were buying something the clerk deemed uncool, passé, or insipid, they'd find a way of letting you know. By now I owned almost every Misfits album on cassette. They were my favorite band, and I wanted to own everything they released. At Ziggy's one day, I spied through the glass a Misfits cassette I'd never seen before. 
The trouble was I couldn't make out the damn title. I squinted and stared, but from my vantage point below, I couldn't parse the illegible, cryptic-looking font. The proprietors of Ziggy's were middle-aged guidos who just happened to enjoy rock music. They were jerks. I walked over to the counter and asked the clerk, who looked like a cross between Paul Stanley and Sylvester Stallone, if he could retrieve for me a tape out of the cabinet. He followed me over to the wall of cassettes. Which one, he asked. Misfits, I said, vaguely pointing. Which misfits, he asked, growing impatient. I gazed up again at the title on the spine, took a breath, and offered my best guess. That one, I pointed. Chile. Chile, repeated the incredulous clerk, crinkling his face as if I'd just unzipped my fly and begun pissing on the floor. That's evil live, man, he finally said. So it was. Evil live. Chile, repeated the clerk, chuckling. Why the fuck would it be called Chile? A few years later, I was shopping at Staten Island's other record store, the Music Emporium. By now, I was heavily into punk. I knew every Minuteman, Husker Du, and Black Flag record by heart. I also knew, thanks to Thurston Moore showing clips of Harry Pussy and Mertzbau on MTV's 120 Minutes, about noise and experimental music, and I'd finally deduced that K and Kill Rock Stars were different labels. I thought I was pretty cool. I was, and remain, a massive Sonic Youth fan, and was around this time collecting all the Sonic Youth-related stuff I could find. Such was the extent of my Sonic Youth fandom that an impish friend once made sport of my devotedness by defacing with a sharpie my copy of Thurston Moore's 1995 solo album Psychic Hearts by amending the song title Hang Out to read Hang Out with James. A quick aside here, life is funny, a few years later, I actually would find myself hanging out with Thurston on a pretty regular basis. I went on tour with Sonic Youth, traveling from gig to gig with Kim and Thurston in their small car, was on several occasions a guest in their home, and was signed to Thurston's record label, Ecstatic Peace, during which time Sonic Youth's Lee Ronaldo, lifelong hero of mine, produced and performed on one of my albums. And though we no longer have much occasion to hang out, the members of Sonic Youth and I are still friends. Anyway, so I was perusing the Music Emporium's vast collection of punk singles, when something in the glass case above caught my eye. It was a cassette by a band I'd never heard of called The Coachmen, and the tiny sticker on its spine read, Featuring a pre-Sonic Youth Thurston Moore. Intrigued, I asked the aloof clerk in the Rites of Spring t-shirt about it. Hey man, I said, what's the deal with that Coachman tape? The clerk, sighing heavily, rose from his stool and slowly removed the tape from the hallowed vault. He pulled out the tape and dispassionately read the words on the sticker verbatim. It's something featuring a pre-Sonic Youth Thurston Moore. Oh, well, that certainly clears that up. Sensing that chubby, disaffected Discord guy didn't know or didn't care about the album, I just said, okay, I'll take that, I guess. Suddenly aware that this Coachman tape was something very, very uncool for me to buy. I wish later I'd responded to the clerk's snarky hostility and kind, but the truth is that guys in real life who had actual tattoos and actual piercings and actual dyed hair were still somewhat intimidating to me. I mean, they were really doing it, living some kind of alt-life that I still regarded with the curiosity of an outsider. I knew the clerk's type. To him, anything that could be seen on MTV was uncool corporate pap. Thurston Moore might as well have been Don Henley. I would later become an acquaintance of this very record store clerk, occasionally socializing with him at hardcore shows. 
He didn't remember the coachman incident, of course, but I never forgot it. I resolved that, should I ever be lucky enough to work at a record store, I'd never make anyone feel lame about what they were buying. Failure to Thrive by the Coachman turned out to be a pretty cool album. The band is definitely more historically interesting than crucial to a record collection, but it's a neat record and I still own it. Every December, the Music Emporium would temporarily relocate its awesome collection of punk singles to the basement to make way for Christmas garbage. This occurred each year for several years, with the punk records returning to their rightful place sometime after the new year. One January, though, the singles mysteriously failed to return. By now the store was making enough money selling tacky Sopranos memorabilia and Mariah Carey Christmas posters that they no longer needed the patronage of the local punk rockers, alienating and eventually eliminating their not insubstantial customer base of freaks and weirdos. In just a few years, the Music Emporium would be shuttered for good. Good riddance. Fuck that place. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Thanks to everyone who subscribed or donated so far, and I hope you're enjoying the show. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about drugs, Jimmy Jack? What about drugs? Well, next episode we will discuss drugs. You'll also get to hear the worst band I was ever in. All that and more next week. Till then, this is The Toth Zone.